Our chronological look at the career of Carol Kane continues on Praising Kane with the Jose Luis Borao's Spanish drama La Sabina from 1979. It's Praising Kane. I'm your esteemed host and guy, Liam O'Donnell, and with me is El Angel, the Canadian angel, Doug Tilly. Doug, how's your life right now? I mean, it's okay, Liam. Uh, (laughs) I want to welcome everyone to our least listened to episode of Crazy Kane, a podcast that doesn't... Don't put that into the... You don't know that. I don't look. La Sabina is very popular on the internet. (laughs) Well, I can tell you, uh, after having done many searches for even people writing about it in Spanish over the last few days, there isn't that much out there. Uh, This might be the most... Uh, uh, underseen of the films that we've covered on Praising Can actually by by far it it is and uh, and so we tried to pump it up Liam with a second project that we're going to be talking about that also is something that people have not heard of and probably will not care about. <laughs> That's true. Um, do we know how, what was the La Sabina's release thing like? Like, did that get international release? Did people see La Sabina outside of Spain? Now, I think so, but there's no contemporary reviews I can find when you do a search online. So if it did, it didn't have probably outside of film festivals. I don't think it, it was reviewed very heavily. And that the common version, and this is something we talked about briefly on previous episodes, of this movie is the Spanish one, complete Spanish, just dubbed it, all the English actors dubbed in Spanish. So the fact that we're even watching this is kind of a rarity already. And there's no like DVD or Blu-ray release, to my knowledge, of the English version. So, yeah, so it's a little tough to find is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Considering the theme of this movie, not the theme, but parts of this movie very much rely on the fact that some of these characters are bad at Spanish. It's weird to imagine this whole movie dubbed into Spanish, but we'll get to that. Uh, luckily, yeah, you decided to pad out this episode with something I like how it's me. People you decided, listening you might decided, know that you are the host you de- of you this decided, show. <laughs> you decided to pad out this episode with a real crowd grabber, just something that really is mm-hmm. Going to bring people in, which is a 1978 episode of PBS's <laughs> Great Performances. Uh, this this episode called "Out of Our Father's House." Um, this was first broadcast on August 2nd in 1978 on PBS. Um, mm-hmm. It's a televised play uh, of the work of Ava Marion. Uh, the play is about six real life leaders of the women's suffrage movement. You know, I take issue with that. Actually, wasn't one yeah. of these characters not a leader of any kind? I don't think. I think. It's hard, I think, to categorize all of them as being part of a suffrage movement. They are very sure. diverse voices, which is what made it sure. interesting to me, to be honest. I I agree. I think I think it's better. You know, this is based on uh, the book um, "The Life of Women in America," I think, or "The Life of a Woman in America," something growing like that. up female in America. There it is. Thank you, growing up female in America. Um, and it's you know, it is very. Uh, how would I describe it? Naturalistic, because it's based off of the actual letters and journal exactly. writings. It's like their mm-hmm. actual words, which is why it's also kind of a loose thing to call it a play. There's no actual interaction of these women. They act often like they are interacting. But these are words they wrote down and said to some other person who's not in the play. So the fact that they're saying them to each other as if they're in the same room is part of the sort of the dramatic uh uh, conceit of the thing. It's not. Sure. It's not mm-hmm. an actual uh, creating of interactions. And so some of these uh, historical figures being portrayed. Uh, Jackie Burroughs is uh, Sean Mar- Maria Mitchell, of course. The namesake of this podcast, Carol Kane, is Eliza Southgate. Uh, Diane Weist as author Elizabeth Gertrude Stein. Oh, Stern. Stern. Yeah. Why did I say sorry. Stein? Oh, because I, I was thinking. I, I... Yeah, anyway, please continue. Uh, Maureen Anderman as Dr. Anna Howard Shaw. Uh, Well, this is interesting. Kayulani Lee as Elizabeth Katie Stanton. And Jan Minor as uh, Mother Mary Jones. Of course, uh, Mother Jones being a labor leader and the magazine Mother Jones is named after her. Um, She's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, seriously. And all of these characters are made interesting in this thing. We'll we'll get into that in a sec. But Mother Jones is, of course, the one that I knew about ahead of time. Uh, This was directed by Jack Hofsis. Um, Yeah, so, you know, it's a televised play. It's not 
something that you would say, I don't know. Uh, th there is interesting camera work in that we have these characters moving through these very sparse sets. There is staging to talk about, uh, but it's it, it's not. There's a live movie. musicians as well who are just yeah. kind of creating a sort of ambiance because we're talking sure. about you know 19th century figures. Yeah, 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 totally. So, Doug, I don't know. Uh, I guess I I want to ask you what you thought of this thing overall first, and then after you tell me what you thought of it. What's your general vibe when it comes to a filmed play of this kind? I, l I don't have any trouble with the film play, with the idea that you have to kind of take it with the with the understanding of that conceit that it's a film play, right? And that you are not sure. going to get the same sort of production values that you would get right. uh, otherwise. I mean, it's a little different these days when you get like Hamilton on Disney+, Plus, which, you know, almost feels like a movie, just but also has that play aspect with clapping and shit like that this one is kind of funny right because in the very i think it's in the very final segment uh and this the, the all the best stuff in this i think comes in the in the final 20 minutes or so and it's all good but the stuff that i really remember comes from the final 20 minutes there's a part where someone's doing one of their monologues and like something hits the camera and it just wobbles for a second it it really was quite it was like a real reminder oh right they're probably only doing this a couple of times and that's it that's all they have to go on uh, so I have no problem with, with film plays. I'm glad that there's some sort of record of this. But, I mean, Agreed. that is what it is, is. It's a series of kind of monologues that are adapted from these writings. Real people did. And they're intersecting and they're going back and forth between these characters. And at the beginning, I was like, hmm, I wonder if something like this would be for me. Because it feels a little off-model generally, right? I mean, really just feminist writing from the 18th century, learning about these people's uh, lives you know, on a very kind of base level. And I have to say, by the end, I was in. I was I was very much like very drawn in by these performances. I recognize some of the actors, Diane Weiss, certainly, but also Jackie Burroughs, who in Canada is an icon because she was on the television show Road to Avonlea, uh, the kind of spinoff of the Anne of Green Gables uh, saga. Right. Uh, I forgot about that show. Yeah, I've I've watched it. Uh, I mean, it, it up here, it was just one of those things, which is like a given that people knew what Road to Avonlea was. But I, again, I, I loved all the performances in it. And there is a, uh, a section, probably, I think it might be one of the sec maybe the second last uh, monologues near the end of the movie, where uh, Kailani Lee, as Elizabeth Cady Stanton, tells this story about being taken um across i guess this plane that was like very deserted and kind of scary uh, uh by this gentleman who basically tries to accost her or assault her about halfway through and her response to it and it is unbelievable it is so right. good yes. and so engaging and all the mother uh, mary jones stuff is great as well i mean it, it it's a it's a story that ebbs and flows because it usually starts from early in the person's life and then moves on to to material that's a little more interesting but i have to say Especially that final 20 minutes. I thought this was terrific. And hey, it, luckily it's available on YouTube to watch right now. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you, Doug. I, I did feel like there were ebbs and flows. There were there were parts of it where, and I don't think it was the performances. It's just because of the material, because it's mostly monologues. Like there is drama in the monologues, but there's not drama on stage, right? Like the essential aspect of drama on stage other than when she's reenacting this story of her assault, would be interaction between the characters. So a lot of times you're just hearing someone tell a story um, and and the mileage on that varies depending on the story uh, and depending on, you know, for me, a little bit how it's filmed. I, not, yeah. not all the stuff like was dynamic. Some of it really was. It's not just that her story of her near assault is harrowing. The way that they filmed it was genius. And they had, if you notice, some of the people in the background, the other uh, uh, characters, were like miming out some of the actions and stuff. Mm -hmm. And fucking brilliant. It was, in fact the best if you were watching this in a room like i don't think you would watch this up on a stage it would, it would be better in the round or on like even floor you know like a black sure. box performance would be better I hear, for this. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah 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 but uh if you were watching it you would definitely think it was the best staged aspect of the whole thing and that's not to say that the other staging is bad but this is one of the few points where i was like oh the staging helps this is like better this way than some other you know what i mean whereas other parts of the staging were 
fine or not detrimental. <laughs> Another part that's actually really effective is there's a story where uh, the the one of the characters is telling the story of when her brother died and yeah. her reaching out to her father. And what we see is the back of his chair and her like talking yes. to the chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the absence. You know he's not there, but in a sense it's more effective that he's not there, if if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Powerful, powerful fucking shit. But there's just as much stuff where it's like, okay, she's just standing there. And like, you know what I mean? It's it's just and, – and, and you know, again, I agree with you. All the performances are great and a lot of the material, though it's journals and letters, is still very good. The, you know, w- the trick of this thing is not what's written because the person who put this together didn't fucking write this. It's editing, right? You have to ask what – aspects that they decide to hold up as important things for us to know and i think a lot of those choices were very good but you have to be it's a magic trick doug it's a magic trick to go through the journals and letters of people and find enough actually interesting shit to justify putting it in front of people on a stage that's and not to order that's not i easy. mean the way it's ordered is the other thing right the right. way yes, that they interact 100%. is also the important and the kind of build that happens i don't think we've made this clearly I'm, this is a filmed play but there's no audience None. So there's no right. there's no response when people are doing this, and I think right. that that is kind of an essential part of a play, and it feels a little absent when I'm watching this. That's how I feel about a lot of, of film plays. Is not all of them, but a lot of them that I've seen, there's no audience, right? Because you want the camera to be able to get closer to get a more intense reaction. So there's no audience. Well, that's missing something. Like you're missing the tension you feel. I you know the the giggles. The, the, the gasps when something exciting sure. happens. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's what makes live theater great. In fact, I've talked to people who've only seen plays in their filmed version and they sure. want to tell me they don't like theater. And I'm like, well, you haven't been to fucking theater, man. Like, until you've been <laughs> in an audience, you don't really. It's like, you know, you haven't been to a show or a concert if you've only watched it on TV. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. being there is a different experience. And so, um, and that, that this is all coming across like a little bit harder of a critique. It's very good. It's just there were parts that were hard for me to engage with. I was feeling myself getting a little lost. And I bring that up to say I agree with you that by the end, a lot of the stories – you know, are really engaging and kind of the whole thing, I think, ends very well. It's just uh, it doesn't necessarily grab me all the way through. But I think, again, I think that's more of a limitation, uh, not even of the material, but of the way it's presented. That I think if I was in a theater watching this thing, it would be easier to stay fully engaged. Whereas on TV, the way that it was filmed, where they put the camera, sometimes affected my ability to engage or stay, let's say, stay engaged. Right. Uh, Whereas in the beginning, I was kind of sucked in immediately because I was thinking, what the fuck is this? You know what I mean? Like, I just didn't know (laughs) what I was getting. Like, I, I, I knew to some extent what I was getting, but I didn't know fully. And I didn't know why... These characters. And I think that's the other thing that's really good, right? We've picked six people out of a history of millions of women. Why <laughs> these six women? And a lot of, you know, at this time, and this is, you know, most of these characters are from the 1800s, right? There were a lot of women at this point who were probably journaling and writing letters. I mean, you had to have a certain amount of privilege, which is maybe a limit to this story. But it's not a total limit. The other limit, of course, is that this is a very white story. Right. And that's, yeah, that was going to be my final sort of thing. But then again, you know, it's 19... It's 1978. Uh, a feminist production in 1978 is almost always going to be white, unfortunately. Yep. But that's that's how that goes. But for what it is, it's very good. And like, not even just from a political mindset. I think both of us are very sort of ideologically uh, inclined to be interested in this thing. I think it also just works as like a piece of art, which is like, you know, maybe that seems like a silly thing to say, but it's worth saying. Sometimes something that has a good point like this doesn't actually work as art. And this manages to be both impactful and well done, you know? It's it is green vegetable programming to a certain extent. You know sure, what I mean? Sure, sure. Like sure. I think of myself as a teenager, a piece of shit teenager that I was, and I was like, I'm flipping through the channels and this is on PBS. I'm like, next. <laughs> right? This is just it's a difficult sell. But it is also, as now a person in their 40s who, you know, has a kind of more of an expanded worldview, this isn't something I'm necessarily drawn towards. It's not something I would have went out of my way to see outside of the context of this show. But I'm really glad I watched it. And it did make me, you know, interested in these individual people. I did some research on it afterwards. I was like, who are these people? Which I think is exactly the point of a play like this, where you're, you're trying to capture someone's imagination. I will say... 
uh, and this is a context that I don't think our listeners will necessarily appreciate fully, but I both I think that both Liam and I also approach this material in a different way, which is that we were watching the feature that's featured on Praising Kane today, La Sabina, which is a movie that, as we'll get at, we'll get to, mixes English and Spanish, but the Spanish is unsubtitled, and it can be a bit of a frustrating watch. I think both of us had to take a little break from it. And this was a very unique break to take. Agreed. Where it's, you know, agreed. Uh, but it also, I think it made it, it helped me at the beginning where it's like, oh, I'm feeling very frustrated with this other material. Let's get, do something that's a little easier. It's not easier, you know, thematically, but it was certainly easier to kind of, oh, I know exactly what this is. I can I can hold on to this very, very easily. And, and I really engaged on that level. And by the end, I was, like I said, 100% in. It's certainly, too, a reminder of the range of Carol Kane. I don't think these two characters are that similar. They have some similar DNA, but they're sort of different. And also of the range of her uh, ability to play ages. Like, we just saw her play a teenager and a mom in one movie, right? Yeah. And then in th- and then for this, she's playing a, a woman on her own in Spain. Uh, but then we also saw her play this... Uh, character who we sort of see go from being a teenager to a very young mother and all of it's reliable she's sort of uh sort of uh uh, a chameleon when it comes to to that sort of thing um but yeah i agree also this felt you know here's a spoiler for what we're about to talk about (laughs) it was nice watching something that felt like it had a little more weight to it and was a little less narcissistic because Mm -hmm. The thing we're about to discuss is a little bit up its own ass. So, um, uh, that so, is a spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, the movie we're about to discuss, La Sabina, is from 1979, right? In 1980 is when uh, she's in her first episode of Taxi. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so uh, what is going to become clear over the next few episodes of Praising Kane is that Carol Kane will be doing not really very visible projects sure. yeah. because she's going to be appearing quite frequently on Taxi which is really the thing that's going to kind of launch her to more mainstream fame and kind of establish her as a comedic actress even though as we can yeah. see including in the movie today that is uh, far from the the uh, all of the talents that she possesses but sure. yeah the first episode that she appeared on now Taxi had had been uh, already I think one season in on season 2 episode 17 which aired on January 15th 1980 her first appearance as Simka Dablitz Gravas uh, was on Taxi. And I know, Liam, that you have no interest at all uh, in ever covering television, but there might be an opportunity upcoming where it might be a good idea for us to at least watch the first episode that she appears in. I mean, I you know, Taxi's a classic. I'm willing to yeah. watch it. If we, if we feel like it's necessary for the show and really to, like, understand her, I'm willing to watch Taxi. And, you know, it's, it's a big chunk. It's not a short period of time she's on the show, but I think we can make the effort to do it. And it's unlike a lot of TV we could watch for, say, oh, I don't know, uh, when Mr. Eric Roberts. I think in this case it would actually be a fun watch, you know what I mean, and be worth our time. Uh, at, at the next four things we have here, we've got The Games of Countess Dolingen, uh, 1981, The Greatest mm-hmm. Man in the World, 1981, Strong Medicine, 1981, and then Pandemonium in 1982. And this definitely marks a period of time where she's in things that I've never Fucking heard of i don't know any of these things uh, you never heard of pandemonium i mean i'm, I'm not knocking you for not knowing no that. no no it, I, it got more of a release i think a wide release just recently on some sure. sort of special edition it's like a horror uh, comedy oh <laughs> well doug uh i was about to say no that is actually the one on the list that sounds familiar oh and then when you just said horror comedy i said oh it sounds familiar because i purchased it <laughs> I purchased it. I was getting a bunch of stuff in a bulk because I think is that a vinegar syndrome release? I believe it was. Yes. Yeah, I was. I was deciding if I wanted to get their thing one month when I had a little bit of extra cash. Which y'all don't get it twisted. I don't usually afford vinegar syndrome shit. I don't have money like that. But there was one year where there was one release month rather when me and Justin were talking about getting it and using rough cut money, and so we did. So there you go. <laughs> the director of Pandemonium actually just passed away a couple of months ago. Also, the uh, director of the classic Alice, Sweet Alice. Oh, love that movie. Big fan. Yeah, well, big fan. well, we can't talk about any of this now because we'll have to yes. talk about it on our Pandemonium it's true. episode. Four for shows down the line. Well, unfortunately, um, this is not our Pandemonium episode. Uh, <laughs> after the break, Doug, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about 1979's kind of in Spanish, kind of in English film, La Sabina. We'll be right back. Daisy, 
Who is the Sabina? Peppa doesn't want to tell me. Oh, I never mention her. I'm sure. No, Ingito. What happens with this uh, Sabina? She is a dragon. A draguna! Because she's a female. She only eats men. And if you give to her some female shit, she don't eat. She won't. How quaint. I love you because it's true. During the city war. During the city war. Nobody knows how many more shit. And Mackie's and so many people. But do you know where it lives? An English scholar visits a small Spanish town in the Andalusian mountains to investigate the disappearance of another English scholar long ago. He learns of the legend of Sabina, a mysterious dragon woman who becomes his obsession. It's La Sabina from 1979, directed by Jose Luis Borao. I keep saying it funny, Doug, because I want to get it right. <laughs> Jose Luis Borao. It's also like, this is one of the things, y'all, if, you, if for some reason, even though we're about to tell you about this movie, you decide to actually watch it, which is hard to do, so you probably can't. But if you do, I just want to warn you that the Spanish in the movie is not just Spanish, right? It's Spanish-Spanish, which means there's uh, there's parts of Spanish-Spanish, and I'm sure you know this, Doug, where it sounds like everyone has a lisp or something. You know, there's like a more of a TH sound. Sure. And because I... Uh, by the way, guys, my Spanish skills are for nothing. But when I have learned Spanish, it's always been from Latinx people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Latinx people do not speak Spanish the way that Spanish people do. It's not a, <laughs> it's not so big a difference that I couldn't recognize certain things. But there were times where people were talking and I'm like, everyone sounds funny to me. Jose Luis Barrao Moradel uh, was born in 1929. No, you're not supposed to say that part. <laughs> I am going to say it. He was a Spanish producer, screenwriter, writer, and film director. He won the Guerrero Award for Best Director in 2000 for Leo. This is worth noting because this movie from 1979 is so bad that it's not that bad, guys. But it's not great. And um, I'm surprised he won an award ever, even though it was many years later. Uh, This was also written by Jose Luis Barrao. Obviously, it stars Carol Kane, but also there's Angela Molina, John Finch, Harriet Anderson, Simon Ward, uh, Ovidi Montalor. I don't think I said that right. Ovidi. That's, that looks all right. Ovidi okay. Montalor and uh, Luis Escobar. That's easy because Pablo Escobar. Come on. Uh, yeah. So it's you know, <laughs> it's 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 a movie about uh rich people falling in lust and drinking their lives away and not writing the book that they've already been paid for. It, it, it it's a strange film, Doug. I know that you happen to both love rich people specifically english ones mm-hmm. and and love and really love infidelity so i figure this film was like right up your alley but you know who knows maybe i'm wrong what did you think of la sabina before i say what i think of la sabina i think we it's very important that we contextualize our viewing of la sabina which i know right we, we said this a little bit but it's worth saying guys like this is a film that is in spanish and english and in the version we found and as far as Doug could tell it's the only version with english available there are no subtitles for the spanish so we are somewhat limited here in that there are <laughs> way longer sections than either one of us would like where everyone's speaking spanish that doesn't mean that it's not i would still say doug and you can agree or disagree with this a majority of it is still in english a surprise i would say it's like a 70 30 split maybe uh but a lot of the backstory of la sabina is in spanish and there's no one talks about it later in english to make it sufficiently clear it's a unique experience to watch a movie like this where you know you understand enough to follow the plot it's not difficult to understand what's going on necessarily but you do feel like you are losing a good deal of nuance because even the english speaking characters like your john finch or cal kane they speak a lot of spanish in this as well we interpret it as being bad spanish like they're not supposed to be incredibly fluent but they speak a lot of it so even when you're like relaxing a little it's like oh in this scene they'll be speaking english then it's not you don't understand what's going on so you have to kind of you really are paying attention to the context maybe a lot more than you would uh otherwise um i also found it frustrating doug because that people who speak English are the ones mostly concerned with the melodrama and the like sex and whatnot. And the people who speak Spanish are giving you the actual cultural context of where they are. <laughs> so it's like, that's the other, it's sort of, uh, uh, it's sort of exacerbated the feeling of a separation as a, as a viewer, because it's like, Oh, all the people who are interesting common folk are the ones I don't understand what the fuck they're talking about. 
And the one other thing, and maybe this is just uh, me, Liam, but even the English audio in this is not so well recorded that sometimes it's like there there are scenes of people like driving and the audio was obviously was taken live from while they were driving very quickly. So it's very difficult sometimes to even hear the English audio. And then we have Spanish characters speaking English with heavily uh, accented English. And that's difficult as well. So this is a movie that I was like cupping my ear to the entire time. I was like, huh? So what was that again? <laughs> so in terms of what I thought about the movie as a whole, um, I don't feel like I can accurately like review it. So the, I, everything here has to be taken with several grains of salt, but I think enough of, I, you know, I, I, I grasped enough of it that I can give my general opinion. And I will say that up its own ass is probably a little unfair, but it is a movie that has very, it thinks it's lead character played by John Finch. who is this tortured drunken writer who has gone off to this small Andalusian town to basically research what happened to this old poet writer guy who just he came to this town and disappeared at some point uh and he's writing a book about it and he is a cad right we know that he's kind of a piece of shit he he is um sleeping with carol kane but obviously doesn't love her he basically immediately falls in love with a local uh woman peppa a local spanish woman uh he's already married even on top of that he's very emotional very out there. He's kind of got a David Bowie-esque swagger to him, I would say, as well. And he is presented as someone that women cannot resist to some extent. I could resist him, however. And I found his character <laughs> to be thoroughly unpleasant throughout. Yes, yes. Uh, and I'm glad that you said fall in lust because there is this suggestion that this is a guy who is like the uh, writer uh, who he is trying to research. That writer was rumored to have been um, devoured by Sabina, the the legendary dragon woman who like a lot of who men fall for and she has sex with and then kills. And there's supposed to be a parallel. She eats their penises. Eats eats their penises. That's right. And uh, the suggestion that there's a parallel here where he's being enveloped by his love for the Spanish girl, but the fact is. He's just being a piece of shit. He's just right. in incredibly attracted to her and he can't get over it. And we're supposed to have, I think, a level of sympathy for his obsession. But, boy, it did not get too far with me. I will say, however, that John Finch is believable in this as a garbage, kind of Oliver Reed-ish lout. Um, and he does give a very good performance. I know him mostly from, I think I've only seen him in a few things, but definitely Hitchcock's Frenzy is the movie that I most connect him with. And also the um, the um, Polanski version of Macbeth. Uh, he's the lead in that as well. A very good actor, though he mostly in this movie just has to loudly shout how frustrated and horny he is at all times. It is a movie that I had trouble kind of really connecting to on a base level. But I will say there are odd things about it, particularly with the Sabina uh, part of it, that I was intrigued enough to see, wanting to see where it was going to go. But it kind of all went exactly where I was expecting it to go. That's true. There's a certain amount of well, it's interesting because, um, oh man, you just opened up so many avenues for me to talk about that I'm, I'm a little bit like, oh no, which way do I go? Let's start with this thought, and it's to this idea of him as a character. On one hand, I agree he's meant to be, in some way, sympathetic. Though the film is very critical of him, it's yes. also that the film seems to be, even though it's about a bit of a like a libertine sexuality. I think it's essentially a very conservative film. I mean, mm -hmm. part of part of uh, the backstory here that I, I don't know if we're meant to feel sympathy about this or we're just supposed to think like, well, that's what happens, man, is that um, he has left his wife and his wife comes to see him, not because she actually wants to reconcile, though that is on the table that maybe she wants to reconcile, but uh, mostly because she wants him to finish this fucking book that they've already spent the money for. But what you find is that his wife, he has left – because him and his wife had actually been in a thruple with his best friend. And it's clear that his wife has, I guess, stayed with his best friend or maybe even it's it's never quite re reconciled whether he left them or they in some way chose each other over him. That's right. not clear. But they were in a in a in a thruple. And the, the part of it that's not reconciled is whether this was a full thruple or not if you know what i'm saying here. yeah absolutely there's right. unresolved sexual tension between him and his friend and the movie is uninterested in solving that for you and in that 
decision, it feels even more conservative. And in fact, that's what's so weird about this film is that it's sexual. There's obviously not a lot of, but there's a little bit of nudity and sexuality. It is asking you to feel some amount of human sympathy for this honestly just awful person and yet in the end it's essentially like and they all go to disaster because fuck them for being like this in the first place like it doesn't seem to respect his decisions even as it wants you to feel bad for him and and i don't know i don't know doug am i reading too much into that or did did you feel a little bit of like this sense that there's just something wrong with any of them sort of being in these relationships with each other I mean, it, the difficulty of our perspective here is understanding more of the English-speaking plot when it, it's a movie right, that's really yes. cut in half. Because Peppa, who is the the Spanish woman that he falls for, the movie is almost just about as much about her and her, you know, struggling with her feelings for him, the fact that she is engaged to be married, that you know that she has basically fallen into this situation that is very complex because of all the different emotions and. and and the fact that he is already in two relationships at the same time at the time that she meets him. So it's a there's a complexity there that I'm again, I'm not sure that we fully grasp. The other thing, of course, is that she has a brother who has some sort of uh, mental disability. Right. And he is a character that's not really, I, I guess, super important to the plot, but does involve himself in kind of strange ways all throughout it. Um, so it's it's a you know, in terms of my feelings about. I just didn't care that much about whether this guy yeah, yeah, got yeah. what he wanted. You know, at the end, this is not going to be a surprise. We've already hinted at it several times. This is going to end in tragedy for Michael, the John Finch character in this. But when it happened, it just felt inevitable. And maybe it's also for the fact that once it's clear that the story about what's happening with him is meant to parallel the Sabina story, then of course it has to end in tragedy. It's just the form that tragedy that was going to take. But I will say that when it's the middle of the night, and a party is about to end, and we know there's 10 minutes left in the movie, and he's like, let's go to La Sabina. Let's go to the area where she's meant to be. And you're like, oh, okay. I see something bad's going to be happening here. It well, all just felt very point, inevitable. he's already made a decision to end his life and the yes. life of his friend. And mm. it's clear. You know that. It, it, you'd see it on his face when he discovers that this woman who's been denying him her uh, full embrace the whole movie sleeps with his friend. A plot decision, by the way, that yeah. is almost entirely unjustified. There's it is, no it is impossible to explain in the context of the movie outside of the idea that his friend is completely uncomplicated in exactly the same way that he is overly complicated at all times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Obviously, Doug, you know, there's a lot of complicated interactions going on here. Peppa feels the the weight of her community she that's really made clear in the movie that she's mm-hmm. dealing with community expectations she also feels a sense of loyalty to her fiance I, I don't know that she loves him but she definitely has an affection for him and yet somehow she's also fallen for michael who has a complicated relationship with his wife with his friend with poor carol kane and then also with peppa uh doug have you found love to be this complicated i mean admittedly yes uh certainly in my younger and let's say more um, I'll say passionate, which is a loaded word. In my younger years, I probably did find love to be this complicated. But now that I am a settled down older gentleman, statesman, as you will, sure. um, it to me, whenever I see things like that, this, I'm like, just fucking take a moment and just think about what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I know. Mean, it's how hard. old is he supposed to be at this point, though? At this yeah, point? that's it, right? He like feels 40, like he's probably forty-five. <laughs> It's difficult to gauge people's ages in 1979. They're either 20 or 50, and (laughs) I can't really tell. Yeah, I think he's supposed to be a guy who should know better at this point. And maybe he's having some sort of crisis of the the idea of what what he's lost in his life at this point. I mean, he's already been, like, married, and yeah, it's it's a little tough to say. I, um, I don't think love has to be this complex, but when you're dealing with a lot of feelings and hormones and all that sort of shit, it's hard for it not to get... And that's the thing about the situation at the core of this. It's not like it's an impossible situation. I mean, this sort of stuff does happen. It's just that it keeps adding layers of complexity. And I will say that the person who gets kind of lost in all of this is Carol Kane, who doesn't yes. really have a character in this. So, Liam, I got to bring up something that I, I don't fully understand in this movie i wasn't even sure if i actually saw what i saw there is a part in the movie where manolin who is peppa's brother in the film he has been brought uh, he was in a bar uh michael john finch's character gave him some drinks 
Peppa shows up. She's pissed about it. She takes him to Carol Kane's house. They set the table, and then Peppa leaves and leaves Mandolin there. And then Carol Kane says something to him in Spanish, and he starts to undo his pants, and then it cuts away. And I don't know what to make of this scene whatsoever. I might be incredibly misinterpreting it. Uh, and, and I kind of hope I am <laughs> because, uh, again, I, I, I must repeat, this is a person who's shown to have a childlike mind to a certain extent uh, and, and is presented like that throughout the entire film. But boy, what a strange thing, Liam. And my understanding is that you do not remember the sequence whatsoever. Not at all. And I, <laughs> I, I wish I did because I want to know what she says to him that would make him take his pants off. I think she's saying, says, says por, por favor, which, you know, like, please for Senorita, for, for her, right? It's like, please do this for me. That's my understanding is that that's what she says at that moment. But what? What is happening? I am beyond confused, Doug. I almost want to, like, also watch it because I'm so confused by what you're saying. <laughs> now, Liam, you said earlier that you interpreted this as a film about class, which, I mean, when with this many British people are in here, of course it's going to be about class in some way. But this is a very international cast. I think Harriet Anderson is Swedish, uh, Simon Ward is British, John Finch is British, and Carol Kane is, of course, American. H- how do you see this as about class? That's interesting you made that transition because I was trying to figure out how I was going to make that transition as the host of the show. <laughs> but you've done it for me, Doug, so let me say, uh, you know, here's a movie about a guy who lives in a very nice Andalusian flat and has wasted an entire year drinking and not even having affairs necessarily because we're presented, right, that he's with Carol Kane. And then he only has just discovered this woman who's painting, and that's like the point at which we are at. So what has he been doing for 365 days? (laughs) He's not writing his book. He's never even been to the local library, where it turns out they have a bunch of letters from the guy he's supposed to be writing about. I just like how little effort he had to make to have a breakthrough. (laughs) Yeah. And his, you know, his 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 uh, wife and her lover, his ex friend, have enough money to travel to Spain to check on him. It just seems like it, the poshness of the idea that he's already been paid for this book about this writer and what's he going to do. And and there's a sense in which his wife has come to reclaim him as her lover. But I think also it's like trying to get his life together. All of it feels very privileged to me, Doug. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> even the way he talks about it, remember the, the the part of the confusion on both his wife and his friend's cases, what what the fuck are you doing here? Like clearly our life in England look, even saying it out loud is disgusting. <laughs> our life in England is like what's important. And this here, you're living among I mean, the way that they refer both to the country and the people here is as if he's living in a hut in the woods and that's not even to like judge like for me i'd rather be in a tribe than in fucking london you know what i mean like i'd rather be in the amazon (laughs) uh but like for them it's like how could you be how could you be anywhere but england like how could you be anywhere but and i said london who knows where they're from you know whatever but you know how could you be anywhere but where we belong these people have no cult. I mean, they literally say there's no culture here, which is like, are you kidding me? Like, if culture is made up of art and food and music, there's clearly more culture here than wherever the fuck you came from, motherfucker. In fact, the movie makes an effort to show them being yes. surrounded by yes. like very explicit examples of their culture yes. all the time. Yes. So that's why it feels like a class movie to me. Well, it's also that that class question I think is related somewhat to questions of the colonial gaze. It's a little problematic because you know the other big colonizers of the world were Spain, and I'm not going to make the mistake of thinking that because uh, Spanish folks colonize most of South America and La- and you know basically all of Latin America that therefore Spain are themselves Latinx that's not true Spain are uh, uh, people from Spain are as privileged as any other Europeans but the way that the that they're looking at these folks is affected one by the British mindset that anywhere that's not England is not really civilized but right. but two is is a class thing that the where they are in the Andalusian mountains is kind of poor right that this it's it, it is a judgment on the class of this village and the class of the people who live here and on his life here which has apparently just been hanging out in a beautiful apartment and drinking it doesn't seem like he's <laughs> done much else at this time you know so you know they, they I'd say all that, Doug, because I, you know, I, I'm not even saying necessarily that it is 
just or even explicitly about class but even if the film doesn't intend to be class is a part of it and i guess that's where my question is coming from do you think the director is conscious of and trying to critique class uh, in a way i mean he he certainly thinks that these characters from england are depraved i i i want to be clear about that i do think he's sympathetic towards uh, uh michael john finch's character but I don't think the film is like, and everything he's doing is okay. These people are depraved in the context of the movie. What I can't tell is if this is the classic narrative of rich people are depraved or if it's like British people are depraved. I don't know. I'm not sure. But there is a sense that like at least these three characters are in some way uh, afflicted in a way that the local folks are not because all uh, – the local folks are mostly presented as just normal, nice people. Yes. <laughs> Even Peppa, who's basically a victim to all of this yeah, craziness yes. that's going on, right? I mean, she's presented very sympathetically. She tries to resist the whole time. In fact, there's more than one occasion in this movie which feels like she's being assaulted more than she's yes, I you, agree. Know, a, you know, a, a willing participant in all of this that's going on. And in fact, there's a part when she fi- when she sleeps with Simon Ward's character Philip, the friend of uh, ex friend of Michael, that part where he's driving her, there's a kind of there's a feeling of tension that is over those sequences because it feels like he might assault her at any moment. It almost turns into like a horror movie at that point. It, there is something kind of frightening about it, and that I think that's I, I think. Does, I think that's partly though, Doug, because this is definitely not a feminist film. I my feeling is that the vision of women that this film has is not very positive. I I do agree with you, but I do think that the, that the movie still does like this Peppa character, like that, that she is oh totally not, yes, and that she is meant to be a lot more sensible than these men who are just like led by their passion, let's say, uh, at all times, and and seem unable to think straight. Um, it's very difficult for me to make a judgment on this director and his perspective on this without knowing more of his work. But he Fair. is a Spanish director who made movies exclusively in Spanish. So the idea that and apparently like this was after a big uh, a film, one of his more popular films came out in Spain. And he used the credibility from that to make this movie, which is not a very like marketable movie in any ways, as you can probably tell from how we're talking about it. But the idea that he would make a movie about these characters coming to where he's from and not critique them in some way and be critical of them seems unlikely, right? I mean, it right. does. It it seems to me like that had to have been on his mind. It's just uh, maybe it's because some of the stranger aspects of it, and particularly the fact, that, as you said, that it does see these characters as being maybe depraved. I don't know if that's too strong of a word or not, but certainly that they are um, that they are outsiders and that they are bringing a lot of their uh, tendencies to this place that makes them even more of an outsider because they're sure, there doing yeah. these things. So it's a it's hard for me to gauge that entirely, but it was certainly something I was feeling while I was watching it. But I mean, I did I did find myself struggling with how much does this movie hate or like the characters that we're looking at. Well, and there's the mirroring effect, right? Like he's there to study a poet who is a British poet who came to Spain, <laughs> fell in love with someone who was not available, and ended up, you know most likely throwing himself down in the cave where Sabina supposedly is, right? Yes. And, and the, you know, to some extent, it's like, okay, well, it's sort of like he's he's sort of mirroring the actions of this person that he's supposedly obsessed with and, and who he thinks is important when no one else seems to think is important. Uh, but also, is it just possible that British people ruin everything? Do you think that's what's going on here, Doug? I mean, in my experience, that is the case. Um, so I, I can't. I'm sorry. I I apologize to our <laughs> British audience. I'm being an asshole. It's just funny because it's like there's not the only sympathetic character who isn't Spanish, right? Is Carol Kane, and she's presented as like pathetic in a way. Like, oh, it, I absolutely pathetic. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hundred percent aware of the fact that her boyfriend A is married. B has fallen for somebody else and is openly showing that affection uh, in a way that embarrasses her. And there's a part near the end where they walk in on John Finch's character having sex with his wife. And basically she can just say, well, she's his wife. What can I do? So, I mean, she's basically been beaten down to such a massive extent. If it wasn't for that one scene with that uh, with the brother of Peppa, I would feel like she is completely kind of rudderless in this movie. But with that scene, now I don't know what to think. 
Yeah, I don't even know. I think you you dreamed it, even though I know you just saw it. I just watched it to make sure yeah, that yeah, I yeah, didn't yeah. dream it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, look, he, it is interesting to me that this film, uh, in some ways, is about a relationship between three people, right? Like that he had a marriage and that that marriage was complicated and now he's walked away from it and in some ways seems more angry with his friend than he is with his wife. But then she seems to suggest that he's the one that she really loves in the first place. Yeah. All that's very complicated. Uh, Doug, do you think threesomes seem fun, like a fun time that we should all engage in? Uh, I I don't want to make any general statements about that. I know people I know, who are in because you're a spicy lad. I'm a spicy lad. I know people who are in troubles. They make it work. I know people who have gotten themselves in those situations where it really did not work. Uh, and maybe I know more of those latter situations than the former. But that doesn't mean it all depends on the personalities of the people involved. The way that it works here is very strange because his friends, played by Simon Ward, Philip, it is made very explicitly clear that this is a game that they play their entire life where. Philip just steals things away from Michael. Like that's his yeah. whole thing. Yeah. It's like they're, they've constantly been taking things from each other throughout their entire lives. So when Philip ends up sleeping with Peppa, it's like it 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 doesn't. It's a part of it. Though. It doesn't feel earned in the movie in any way. Yeah. But it feels like oh, it's a continuation of that. Do you, but at, do you yeah, think please. there's like a, a homoerotic undercurrent to that? Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Um, I don't know. I mean, there certainly seems to be a. The way, particularly how Philip approaches Michael and the way that he talks to him in this kind of sarcastic, distanced way, it does feel like um, that there is more to their feelings towards one another than we are necessarily aware of. And there is that part, of course, where Michael says to Philip, it's like, let's just leave these women behind. Let's just go off on our own, just like it used to be. And I mean, there certainly is a suggestion there that there might be. I mean, frankly, there's there's an explicit moment where... His wife, Monica, played by Harriet Anderson in, in this, invites him to be part of basically a threesome with all three of them. And, and you know, there's no suggestion that it's going to be <laughs> that's, that she's that's, necessarily going to be the focus. That's why I, I have again, it's hard to say because there are sections of the movie we haven't been able to fully interpret and because we don't know the structures of the work. But parts of the movie feel very conservative to me because all those aspects are presented in a way that feels menacing. Like yeah. their threesome is menacing. His relationship with his friend is menacing. He, you know, his tragic ending is a curse upon Peppa. And it's like Peppa's involvement with them has now stained her and made it difficult for her. She'll carry this wound into her otherwise healthy relationship with this other man who, again, I, maybe she doesn't love him, but she certainly doesn't not like him. There's no yeah. part of her is like, I have to cheat on him with you because he sucks. It's like, no, I actually feel great about him. But there's just something about you as an old, drunk British man that I can't say <laughs> no to. It's very it's very strange. Um, d- speaking of which, Doug, I, you know, we've sort of said this, but I, I want to uh, like an actual check in on it. How much do you actually think we missed by not speaking Spanish? Because I, I, I really was. There was a point where I almost thought, let's abandon this and just talk about the teleplay instead. But then the English sort of ramped up again midway through, and we got through the movie, and I I felt okay. But I didn't know how you felt. Do you think there was maybe essential things we missed, both narratively and thematically, by not understanding the Spanish parts of this movie? I do think that whatever was going on with Manolin, and not necessarily his relationship with with Carol Kane's character, uh, but at least maybe more about what he's all about, I do think we miss a lot of that because most of the Spanish that uh, that is just two characters speaking Spanish involves Peppa, not him because he's basically a mute character, but people talking around him. Um, and certainly in the first half of the movie, like you said, there's a lot more Spanish being spoken uh, exclusively. So a lot of the setup I think we had trouble with. But the fact is a lot of the things, like even the details of Sabina, which is maybe the thing that we missed most, they're repeated for the most part in English later on. I don't feel like we missed so much of it. I mean, I didn't ever ever have any trouble understanding the core relationships that were going on for the most part, right? Mostly because they were so focused on the English-speaking people. So, And the ending of the movie is almost like the, the final 20 minutes is almost all English. So certainly the um, the the... All the context surrounding that tragic ending is something that I feel like I had a grasp on. It's not a, the sort of thing where I'd say, oh, I've seen this in a way that I can speak confidently about all the themes within it. But I do feel like I, I know what this movie's about. I feel like when we're talking about these characters and relationships, there's no question about 
us being right about that outside of this weirdness with Carol Kane's character. So I think the thing that really uh, is hurt by not speaking English is is a lot sur- surrounding Peppa's character, simply because she is the main Spanish-speaking character in this movie. Exclusively Spanish-speaking character, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think there might be something... There's a long extended scene with him and Peppa's father where they go to check out the cave of Sabina. And yes. I wonder if there might be something thematically in how they approach the cave that might matter for decoding the rest of the film. You know what I mean? Michael, him it, kicking that dog around wasn't uh, didn't make me very happy. I'll tell no, you that much. No, not at all. Not <laughs> at all. Uh, but but uh, other than that, then the possibility that thematically the movie makes more sense than I'm giving it credit for, I don't think we miss much. I think a lot of the the movie seems a lot more concerned with the relationships, and a lot of that stuff yeah. works its way out in English. Even with the Spanish-speaking characters, they tend to speak English to the English people. So, you know, it, it, yeah, I, I wish there were subtitles that might have improved our experience a little bit. But overall, I still think we got the gist of the movie, which was – I got one more question for you about yeah, it, please though. go ahead. Why was Peppa so angry at her brother at the very end of the movie? Like, she's smacking him. She's yelling at him. What happens is that, I mean, we've already given it away. Michael and Philip, right? The two male main characters in the movie, for the most part. They go into this cave by themselves. Michael's full, full intention is to kill himself and Philip, which is exactly what happens. He burns them all. But while this is happening, we have Madeline, the the brother of Peppa, watching from sort of afar. I don't think he's supposed to be able to see them in any way. Uh, and I and and they're they're roped on, but Michael cuts the rope. But but once that happens, once the big explosion of fire happens, and the people outside the cave can see it, she's pissed. She's like beating up Madeline. She's so angry at him. Why is she so angry? I assumed it was because he could have seen that the rope wasn't attached anymore. I guess that was his job is to make sure that the rope was attached. Yeah, Maybe. I guess that makes they, sense. They never say that explicitly. That was my well, assumption. Well, they might. <laughs> oh, that's true. If they did, they did it in Spanish and we missed it. Uh, it could also be that, like, he's part of the reason that Michael – there's some there's some way that he helps make sure that Michael finds out about the cave. Yeah. I, something towards the beginning, but I forget what it was. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. I don't know. I don't know. Here's the thing, Doug. I'm concerned <laughs> that we didn't fucking get parts of the movie, but I also am not that concerned because I don't care enough about the movie. You know what I mean? If it was a different movie that I was more invested in, I would be really thinking, like, we really need to see if we can find some translation of this fucking thing. And instead, I'm like, well, I'll never see it. It's fine. It's okay. Because I, I mean, don't feel a- like I missed a lot. This movie was screened a couple of years ago with English subtitles uh, in like a, a live setting. My understanding is that there's no available way to see that that at the moment. Um, but the hope is that that will change. I mean, this is a, a filmmaker that, even though we're not very familiar with his work, is very well respected, obviously, uh, and has a large body of work. And this is a movie that has actual stars in it. Like, uh, what I should say is stars recognizable to us. People like John Finch and Carol Kane. Um, and so it's it's a movie that I hope more people can see. But if you go to like to the letterbox page for this, it's got two reviews, both of them entirely in Spanish. Um, neither and and even the IMDb has almost nothing. It's hard to find any writing about this movie whatsoever, which in some ways is very intriguing. But it did leave us with quite a challenge. To <laughs> it's not even like we could look up stuff and say, oh, here's the context that we missed. There's just nothing out there in English that we could check out. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a bad thing, Liam. We're just being honest about our yeah. feelings about it. I, it's. I think it's because, and this probably doesn't come across a lot. We actually do take what we do seriously enough that I don't love saying negative things about something I didn't fully understand. Right. So take anything negative I had to say with a grain of salt. However, I did understand about seventy percent of it, and that was frustrating to me because it wasn't very good in my mind <laughs> so i feel like if those if that 70 percent was better i'd be more like we need to get we need to find out how to get those english subtitles that 70 so, percent is really cares about things that i don't care as much right, about right. right well speaking of things that we care about that this movie doesn't care about how did you feel about carol kane in this movie well aside from that one scene liam <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna go rewatch it as soon as we're done recording <laughs> I mean, she's a very sad character, as I've already kind of explicitly mentioned, right? I mean, she very much is backgrounded, but part of her character, it's not that she's put in the background and that's 
and because she's not interesting or anything like that, like her purpose in this movie is to be forgotten. It's to be uncared for. It's for Michael to ignore her is to treat her like, like basically she's third on his list of the women in his life that he gives a shit about. And she, she acts like that throughout at the first, at like the first time we see her, she's very much put upon. He's forcing her to get up and, and answer the door. He's obviously, I mean, he, right from the start, you can tell that he's <laughs> kind of a piece of shit. I think she says something like, how come you're so like charming at night, but you're such an asshole in the morning. <laughs> and I mean, that, that kind of envelops him in a lot of different ways, but she it's, it's hard to gauge much about her performance outside of the fact that she is speaking a lot of Spanish in this movie as well, but it is a reality of some of the performances we've seen so far in the 1970s from Carol Kane, that because of how she looks and the frailness of how she appears sometimes that she is put in films where she gets stepped on a lot. And in some of those movies, she gets to then assert herself. In this movie, she never really gets that opportunity. Mm. Well, Doug, I'm going to go ahead and disagree with you and say that Carol Kane is the fucking man in <laughs> La Savita. No. Uh, See, it's fun to be a host, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, for, for real, everything you said is true. I, I don't think she's given enough to do. I think she does actually lend a little bit of complexity to this character because we see this character interacting with the Michael's wife and with Michael's new lover and with yeah. everyone around him and really um, has some things about her that are interesting in another sense. And, and this is maybe where the film failed me the most. There are moments where I really think she's meant to be the comedic relief, the way that she talks to herself, the way she's, where she's weaving something and she's talking when she's to dancing kitty. near the end of the movie. Yeah, I would, you think we're supposed to think that that is funny. Uh, I don't. I that is the one aspect of the movie that I was unsure if that was meant to be funny or dramatic. I don't know. All I know, there's an interesting thing about that scene where she wants to keep dancing, she wants the party to keep going, while Peppa, you know, Peppa's boyfriend has to leave. He has to catch his train, and he's like, "Hey, we got it. We got to end this." And she is like unwilling to stop. The idea, I think, is that that like. <laughs> If she has to ever stop partying, she has to think about how messed up her situation is. Right. So I think there is a sadness that's kind of inherent in her character. And I think she uh, – it is my opinion that a lot of that she brings extra weight to. That with a different actor, they might have fucked it up. You know what I mean? Like I feel like whatever. But uh, I do think there are moments that feel comedic to me and they don't work and that's not her fault. But it's frustrating. Um, all the moments where she is – being stepped on are also frustrating but it's not her performance that's frustrating i think she nails this person who for whatever reason is willing to put up with the bullshit from this guy you know and uh and so you know i i think she is really good in a thankless role uh and in some ways i prefer her to some of the other performances in this film honestly but i mean the big thing is what is she doing in this movie? Doesn't it seem like so strange that Cal Kane... I think this movie was considered arts. I think everyone who's in this oh, movie absolutely. thinks they're doing some fucking big-ass piece of art and the whole thing's a wank fest and it makes me mad. Well, I mean, it's still amazing, right? It's amazing to think that at this point in her career, you know, this is right before she would go on Taxi. This is the last kind of role that you would expect Carol Kane sure. that we know from sure. 2022 to be in. And again, it's just... It is an example of the fact that, A, not only did she see herself as not just strictly a comedic actress, but also B, that she was attempting to do interesting and unique projects, and that will extend to the next movie that we're going to talk about as well. Yep. So up next on uh, Praising Game, we're going to be talking about The Games of Countess Dolingen from 1981. Uh, I know nothing about this, Doug, uh, but I'm excited to watch it. I hope you are too. I know it's based on the, 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 the source material comes from Bram Stoker, so I don't know what kind of gothicness we are in for oh, maybe interesting. I'm setting myself up to for something a little bit strange. We just watched a Spanish movie. This is a French movie. I'm pretty sure I have a copy, thankfully, in English. So we should be not have the same trouble that we had with the with this. But I mean, you talk about this is the time period where uh, Carol Kane is is an international uh, uh, actress. She's going all around the world to appear on these different projects. I've I know nothing about the games of Countess Dolingen, and I'm very curious to find out about it. And I hope that when we do find out about it, we don't find out that we've been pronouncing Dolingen wrong. <laughs> I'm sure we have actually. But that's fine. It is what it is. Uh, Doug, if for some reason people want, I don't know, some more of us, more of this little magic, or or some other things featured on on Cinepunks, where would they go? Uh, well, you can always check out the latest episode of Cinema Smorgasbord on Cinepunks, along with a. Uh, 
variety of wonderful podcasts over there and incredible writing as well. Cinepunks.com. You can find Cinepunks on various social medias, including Instagram and on Twitter under that name, Cinepunks, as well. If you want to check out the archive of Praising King, go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. That's where all the Cinema Smorgasbord podcasts uh, reside, including podcasts devoted to such diverse topics as the career of Jackie Chan, Dick Miller, of course, Carol Kane, Steve Buscemi, uh, as well as uh, podcasts like Jodorowsky, devoted to the work of Alejandro Jodorowsky, and Bartell Me Something Good, as well as George Kennedy's My Copilot. There's just so much. If you like obscure figures in history and you want to know way too much about their careers, check it out over at cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at cinemasmorg. That's S-M-O-R-G. You can also find me on Twitter at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. And Liam's on there as well. At Liam Rules, R-U-L-Z. Thank you so much, Doug, and thank you for listening. Do us a favor, tell a friend, you know, rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff, all the all the uh, 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 categories by which podcasts live. And we'll eventually uh, get to, to Scrooge and the Princess Bride on this. So yeah, we like, promise. Just, we yeah, promise. stay tuned. <laughs> we're getting we're getting there. Don't worry. All right. Thanks so much. Have a great night. Thank you.